Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, with the imminent legislation of GDPR coming in the European Union on personal data, we talk everything personal data with Ruth Acoustic Deal. From consent, data being part of you, the digital human, the Facebook debacle, GDPR and its intricacies for businesses, the fact that data might not be neutral, and wrong assumptions for analysed data. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at machine-ethics.net or you can send an email to hello at machine-ethics.net. You can also support us or sponsor us on patreon.com forward slash machineethics. I hope you enjoy. Ruth, thank you for joining me on the podcast uh, this month. Um, if you could introduce yourself to the listeners, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, hi, I'm Ruth Kustik Deal. I'm a digital rights specialist and campaigner. I work in the, the field around internet rights and have been doing so for the last seven years. And I work on issues to do with free expression and surveillance on the internet. And I also co-run a podcast called The Intersection of Things, uh, where me and my co-host Marinella Ramos Capello talk about internet issues from a intersectional feminist perspective. Great. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast and um, it's been, there's I think there's four episodes now um, as of uh, this episode. Yeah, there I should think be so. more out soon. Um, and they've been um, really good because they're kind of um, talking about privacy and feminist issues, but it's a lot to do with kind of the wider world. It's not really a microcosm, obviously. It's all part of the internet and part of um, things that are in the news right now. And, and it's been really interesting your guys's take on that your guys's um so that's good so i recommend that check it out um so i got you on the podcast roof because um machine ethics we normally talk a lot about ai and um, how ai in the future uh, and now is affecting society and what kind of things we are likely to see and a lot of that seems to be um chatter around losing jobs and um, some of that is also around uh, data and personal data and data bias and all these sorts of things. Um, so I was um, really excited to have someone who is passionate and excited about um, privacy and personal data and fights for rights uh, to come on the show and talk more about um, all the things surrounding personal data and um, not just the internet, but kind of um, algorithms and such. So I was wondering... Um, there's a lot to talk about there, um, but could you give a quick definition of kind of like the major issues or things that we were talking about when we were talking about personal data and personal data and uh, rights surrounding those things? Well, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. I mean, one of the kind of the key things that I'm always talking about around the use of data is basically framing everything in terms of consent. So I understand that there are a lot and a lot of different ways that people use data at the moment. Like some of this is used by companies. There's the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal around how data that people gave on Facebook was being misused by a company. And there's also obviously like personal data that's used by institutions, by the health service. So, and there's also like researchers, everyone is doing different things with data and using data is definitely in and of itself not a bad thing. And there's a lot of like really important things that people are doing. And in fact, a lot of the ways in which we talk about gathering data, sometimes it's framed as though it's all problematic to have data on people, but it can actually lead towards visibility when you gather data on things that aren't known about or aren't seen. Um, 
so how we gather data and how you treat the data you have on people, which is like anything about themselves, like any kind of like identifying personal information about your life, about your family, your political views, your height, all of that stuff mm. is the kind of data that we're talking about. And there's a lot of opportunities that people have with it. It's all about making sure that when you're using people's data, you have real informed unambiguous consent for what you're doing and that you put people like in the driving seat of how their data is used and i can just sort of keep talking about how much yeah i have this like <laughs> real drive around getting people to understand that like data about yourself is part of yourself like even though you don't legally own it when a company has created data about yourself i would say that like trying to think of what the phrase is almost like morally it's still part of you and there are enough other protections and rules that's that give you that control so you need to make like we all need to make sure that we're still like claiming that control and making sure that companies don't overstep their boundaries and that we say like no this is part of myself and like these are the things that you can and can't do with the data and it's like, it's so much better to say, like, I want my data to be used in this research in this way that I've consented for. And I'm I'm happy to see that. And I can't wait to see the outcome of that research. Then have, you know, someone trick people into handing over their data mm. of all of their friends for research and then sell that data on to a dubious company. Okay, well, <laughs> I've, I've made some notes and I just feel like there's just so much stuff to talk about. Ah, um, so <laughs> if we if we peel things back slightly and go, what what is it about this data that is valuable? Okay, so um, I'm really interested here. At, people talk a lot about um, personal data and it being important and uh, being used in nefarious ways by companies um, or by um, you know black hat hackers or other people. Um, what is it that's inherently valuable about this information and and then leading on from that, um, how does that value depreciate? Is there kind of a lifetime to this data? Is this data um, always valuable? Does it have some sort of kind of um, time limit? Or is it some some data better than others? Um, tell us about the kind of the value inherent in that data. Why, why are we getting upset about this? That's interesting. <clears throat> I mean, I think there's different understandings of value. Um, I guess you could look at it from like a capitalist perspective that at the moment our current system is that data has a value in the way it can be used to sell people products. Um, data has value in creating profiles and marketing to people based on the profiles created from that data. But data also has I said a value for research because it allows us the more information we gather, it can be used for medical discoveries and that kind of thing. That once yep. you have like mass sets of data, it allows you to look at things in a brand new perspective. But it also has like personal value because it's about understanding information about yourself. Um, it's about the protection like like the value of your own of yourself like we have value as people and therefore like all val all like sorry <clears throat> and therefore mm. all data that's gathered about us is inherently valuable and there are obviously a lot of other ways in which data is being used against people um not just in terms of 
companies who were using it for marketing but you could also look at surveillance systems you could look at like government and um surveillance capitalism and how it's mm. really important to be able to control the way that's used like there was a scandal recently about how um grinder shared some data about hiv status of um, users on their platform with another third-party company and they didn't m apparently mean to do this they were sharing a whole data set and that was just part of the information they shared and mm. i think it should be like really obvious why that is really valuable like there are so many societal judgments we make about people's um medical status like that and also it, it can be like used against you it's very dangerous like in those kind of situations it would be great if you had a system where you could look at the data that the company holds on you and say like mm. yeah you can share this with these people but definitely never this like that area of data should be like cut off and protected yes yeah i mean we have a start i mean starting but we have some sort of idea of how that works already when you maybe use facebook and you have an app connect to it and it says we want to share this much information with this other third party that you're trying to connect with and it will give you some options and sometimes uh, you can amend those things and sometimes you can't um, in order to connect that application to to your data that is um, held by Facebook and it is that sort of thing that you want to see kind of across the board so like if I had an application that had um, some information about its users that I could um, transparently just tell you somewhere that I hold these data points on people. Um, and, you know, so it's there's no ambiguity there. Yeah, absolutely. I know that m more apps are doing this. You know, when you download something on Android, you can have things that select which permissions you want it to give. Um, mm. And you have camera, body settings, access to the um, your text messages, all of that stuff. And I think that should definitely be the default across, like, most applications that you're downloading like an applications that's that's kind of like tracking but i think as you pointed out there's third party companies that have information or buy information or hold information and those are people also liable to have um different data points and it'd be nice to have some transparency to see there as well i guess yeah and i think there are so many projects that are working towards this kind of thing like having a system where you can actually see what the company has on you like at the moment you don't mm. really understand what facebook has you can you can actually do a subject access request and ask facebook for a copy of all the information that you have and lots of people have done this and it comes in huge reams of paper and i've seen people mm. do stunts where they like pour all of the information out of the window of a skyscraper to have it like drop all the way down to show how much it is um but it would be great if there were ways of like having aggregate versions of that so you could see summaries of the kind yeah. of thing you could see the way they've um marked you in profiles mm. like how have they determined what kind of person you are what kind of ads have they decided they're feeding you with like that's the kind of yeah. information that people need to be in control of i mean there are a lot of things I would suggest that Facebook do to put people like back in the driving seat. I'd like to just see simple programs within Facebook that let you mass leave groups or like mass mm. unlike pages because Facebook uses your likes to create a profile of you and decide how you will be targeted with things. So being able to yep. just see what are all the likes that Facebook is using 
would be really powerful, I think. So you could see that aggregate picture. So you wouldn't think, oh my God, that one time I accidentally clicked like on Oreo cookies. That's the reason why they think I, I want to vote for this political party or whatever it is, yeah. you know. And it might be that you click like, you know, six years ago on something and forgotten or it's not relevant to you anymore. And, and somehow, like, I'm really interested in this idea of um, how things can catch up with you as well and Thing, and I mean, through some of this data collection, you as a like a human being and a, a digital being are being constrained in changing your mind and evolving into, you know, this new person. Um, when all these data points are being collected and are historical and are not forgotten, kind of like, are we, I feel like we're in this position now that we're, as a human being, we are being told we're one thing and we keep changing and evolving into this other thing uh, and we're leaving all this historical trail which is saying no that you're you're this past thing and you're like no i'm not that past thing anymore i've moved moved forward um there's a, there's a, a little bit on that from um uh Trotsky, um who does stuff with the bbc and and, and writes um and has a book and um uh, I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that kind of like um, the digital human sort of aspect of this as well. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm I often worry about how much young kids, babies, people growing up right now are being put online without their consent by their parents. Um, I mean, maybe you could say more about your choices mm. with that as a as a dad, but. I think it's strange, you know, there's that point when you're a baby and it's like, okay, cute baby pictures. But then as someone grows up, where's the line where you stop saying, well, this is a cute baby and babies kind of all look the same. So if someone found a baby picture 12 years down the line, sorry, mate, but you know, it's less identifiable. But then when you've got like a 10 year old or a 12 year old, when are you going to say, do you want to be on my Instagram? Do you want to be on my Facebook? I did yeah. notice that there is something in the GDPR that says that if your parents consented to um, a, a use of your data of your photos when you were a child, that when you're 18, you can request the deletion of anything that your parents consented to because it's not real consent if you didn't make a choice about it, which I think is really interesting. Mm-mm. And there are more and more things... I- I think being directed towards allowing young people to make that choice to recognize that what you posted on Facebook, which is weird, I think, honestly, young people having Facebook profiles, but maybe I'm too old now, um, (laughs) to allow you to delete that or change it. But honestly, you grow up so much in your 20s. I mean, I have learned so much and I've changed my mind on so many things. Um, I know what you mean. There is this thing that's referred to as the right to be forgotten. Um, yep. But it's quite controversial. I I know many people in the digital rights world that I'm part of are very strongly against it from a free expression mm. perspective um, because it can be manipulated and used to hide really important information. It can be used by you know, public figures to make sure people can't find out about past scandals of theirs. Sorry, I realized I jumped forward without mm. explaining to the listeners about what that is. Um, it's essentially a proposal, a law that was passed in the European Union a few years ago now that allows people to request deletion from search results of information that comes up with their name. It's very specific because it doesn't 
allowed the actual deletion of the original um, web page, wherever that information is. It's about mm. having that information not show up in search results. And in some cases, I do think it's been very useful. Um, I remember reading one story about someone whose father was a pedophile and that information came up when someone Googled his name. And this mm. meant that it was always being associated with him, something that this person wanted to move on from. And I was like, you can absolutely understand how justifiable it seems in that situation to ask for that to be removed. Yep. But there are also many other situations where it seems like it's being used to um, like cover up news stories and to bury important information. And I think the like the actual real problem with it is about who decides what's taken down or not, and that's Google. And that's like we're then letting a company make these huge judicial decisions about what is or isn't published online. Yeah. Um, and I don't think like really your opinion on whether or not it's good or bad comes down to weighing up privacy versus free expression. And I think yeah. people just draw that line differently. I think it's tough because um, coming from a more technical side, um, you're not letting people decide, a company decide who can publish necessarily because anyone can publish anything on the web. Um, but it's about the finding stuff on the web yep. and the default way of finding stuff is through search and that's quite often Google. Um, so it's a, it's a strange distinction, but I mean, you can use the web without Google Um it's hard if you use a Chrome browser, for example, because you just it defaults to searching whatever you type into it. Um, other, um, do you have a, a, any feelings against um, for any of the other search engines like DuckDuckGo, things which are prioritizing privacy and um, user, um, you know, not taking user data? as you're searching and using their services. Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, I use DuckDuckGo as my main search engine. Mm. Um, and I also have a system set up where I use a separate browser to use Facebook than I use for anything else, so they can't track me around the web. Um, I mean, if I was going to give my product review on DuckDuckGo, I would say that I don't think I always get the best results. Like, sometimes I do end up searching for things on Google when I can't find it on DuckDuckGo. But I like that it mm -hmm. gives me neutral results. Like the whole thing that it can do is it doesn't give you results based on everything else you've ever searched for. And sometimes it's interesting to do comparable searches, search for the same thing on both yep. and see what comes up. Um, and I like that DuckDuckGo has like little features where you can do like exclamation mark T with a word and it does send you to the thesaurus. Like I, I like its product features, um, but this is not a DuckDuckGo advert. Um, so <laughs> No, but check it out. Um, you can install it on Chrome and Firefox and use that as your predominant um, search engine, which I also do um, for privacy reasons. Um, so... Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, or we alluded to it earlier. Um, so the you we were talking about kind of privacy and GDPR. So GDPR is uh, something that's coming in um, this month, May. next month, May. Uh, so very shortly. Um, and I have been talking to some of my clients about it um, who have come forward and asked me, 
how they can prepare for GDPR. Um, but I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of what GDPR is and um, what kinds of things that you think are really good about it. Yep. So GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, it's also a European mm -hmm. Union regulation um, and it's an update to existing data protection laws. So we actually already have the Data Protection Act in the UK, which also is an implementation of a previous European data protection law. This is re-looking at all of that, given the internet and everything that has come with it, and updating it. I, I'm i a huge fan of the GDPR. I'm a, I'm a nerd fan of the GDPR. I will confess I also was part of the campaign for it. Um, like, I was involved with some of the things that we wanted to ask for in it. And I like... I'm trying to think where to start. I'm mm. a fan of... The fact that it really emphasizes consent, which I mentioned earlier, is something that I value a lot. Um, I'm really excited about the fact that if you read the definition of consent in GDPR, it could just as easily have been written by a feminist sex educator. Because it talks about consent being specific, informed, unambiguous, and indicated by a clear statement or affirmative action. Like, consent cannot be implied. And all of that stuff, I think, is just really powerful. It's saying, like, you can't just assume that you can have permission to use people's data. And there's a lot of other, like, key points in that. Like, you can't do things with people's data that they couldn't reasonably expect. Mm. And then there's a lot more stuff about, like, the rights that you have. You have more rights to see your data, um, to access it, to um, be able to move it between companies, there's also this stuff about how like you can't um, you can't give a detriment to not consenting. You're not allowed to punish people in any way for not consenting to using your data. Um, so you can't even say things like, if you don't sign up to our mailing list, you'll miss out on great deals on lawnmowers. Because that's actually manipulating people into signing over their data. Is that just presuming that the, the deals are great or... <laughs> You know, maybe there are great deals on on lawnmowers. How will we know if because, we don't sign well, up? Well, you are allowed to do it affirmatively. Uh, so you are allowed to say, like, if yeah. you sign up, you'll get access to great deals on lawnmowers. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't say, like, if you don't sign up, it's about, like, punishing people for not consenting. Yeah. You're allowed to encourage people. Yeah, so it's more of a psychological punishing. So it's you're you're tricking them into... Um, believing that they've done something wrong and that they want to fix it rather than it's in their own interest to do whatever they like, you know. Um, I think that's a, I think that analogy is a good distinction, actually. It's kind of like, you know, if you do this, we were going to give you X, but if, and but it's up to you to, to, to not yeah, do that. You know? Yeah, like it seems like, well, it is semantics, but mm. they're important semantics. I mean, I think so much of this seems very tedious and small to a lot of people, but every single part of it is actually making companies, I think, be a lot more responsible. I mean, people are saying that the GDPR is the best data protection in the world. Like, it's setting a new standard for the world. A lot of countries, um, Jamaica, Indonesia, India, are all looking at updating their data protection regulations to match it, Like, which means it's having this like mm. global impact. And 
that's that's also really exciting. Like I'm really hoping that there will be a knock-on effect around how companies around the world start changing their framing. And like I went to a workshop from the Information Commissioner's Office, who are the regulator um, for this law, and they really talked about how it's about framing everything you do in terms of trust and deserving that trust. You know, you're asking people to hand over something that um, is valuable, like exactly what you said, and mm -hmm. that they're trusting you with yep. that. And you have to then deserve that trust. And and it's just about a much better relationship than I think something that we've seen for the last like decade, really, which has been a lot more about manipulating people into giving over information without really explaining how it's used. And then people find that decisions are being made about them, you know, adverts or you know profiles electoral decisions um like huge huge things are happening that people couldn't foresee and that that needs to change and that's why i'm excited mm. because although i know a lot of companies are really angry and like oh god all the work we have to do um and i know that's tough right now but i think that is like respecting your customers is part of the cost of doing business yeah, definitely. I think it's one of those things that hopefully it will, you know, it will come into a a norm, and the the, the norm will be not tricking people and um, having that trust and only taking data that's actually necessary. Um, there was a kind of an idea in the technology world that you kind of save everything, and it doesn't really matter what it is. You just save it, and it will probably be useful later on. And I think it's. Um, it's going to come to the point where we have to start looking at those sorts of um, ideologies that are happening in, in technology and Silicon Valley and those places and go, actually, we haven't been thinking about this. Um, we don't need this data. We don't need it on all of these machines, which is an um, environmental thing in my mind as well. Um, and we don't need to do these profiling people. Um, we are a company that we're providing this experience and actually um, – we can charge people and we can change our the way that we work and we don't need to be um you know making our money on the side uh, people as products we can actually be making uh, money by supplying something people actually want you know actually want to engage with and can pay for um i think it's 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 going to be kind of um, an interesting shift to see if there are many different types of um business models that have to have to change you know because they can't sell people's data all the time under these sorts of new regulations um which i think is just fantastic right you know we're not going to be sold yeah. off all the time hopefully yeah so moving on to kind of infringing trust um in the news at the moment there's cambridge analytica which is um big and uh, was a um, a massive piece in the guardian for couple of weeks i think in the observer and then and and, and all over the news basically because of um, what came out of cambridge analytica and the the types of deals they had and and types of work they were doing trying to manipulate people to win elections right yeah that... basically yeah um so how do you feel about kind of the 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 coming to light of things that we kind of probably knew were happening um but then getting to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, I am so glad that we're actually having a huge conversation about it. Some of this stuff, yeah, I think people 
definitely knew about how much how there'd been a lot of profiling. I know that um, Tactical Tech, who are a pretty cool organization who do work around personal security and giving people tools to stay safe online, um, had done some really interesting research and reports that had talked about this aspect of these profiles. Because Cambridge Analytica weren't overly hiding that that was what they were doing like because they'd been doing like presentations like hire us so we can fix the election no that isn't what they said um but they were like no. trying to sell their services and so people already knew that they were saying well we can divide people into these kind of types and categories um and it's yeah. not just you know left or right wing it's about whether people are like optimistic or pessimistic um you know, it's about how people interrelate with each other. Do they like value family or society more and that all of that stuff. And they were saying we can divide everyone up and then we can predict what kind of adverts will trigger them into voting in specific ways. But where they got all that data from to make this amount of detailed profiles is actually huge news because they're saying that the data was 50 million people that they got from this research. 50 million people is not that much yep. short of the entire population of the UK. That is more than many countries' population. Like They had all of that, all this information on, as we talked about earlier, people's likes, people's behaviors on Facebook. And we're using that to create these profiles, which when we're talking about things you can reasonably expect to be done with your data like nobody could reasonably expect mm. that and it's just making manipulation part of our political system i think i think that would all be fine if this data was sitting around not um being actioned in any way but i think that where we take that step into maybe something which is you know becoming legal and that next month is the way that Cambridge Analytica were, were taking those profiles and actioning those things into um, manipulating how people voted right yeah I mean their data gathering in the first place shouldn't have been legal because the kind of one of the core parts of the controversy here is that someone um, a researcher Alexander Kogan had made a personality test app that was one of those Facebook apps back in the day when everyone was playing Farmville. And mm. the app, when you asked to play it, asked for permission to access your personal information and also gave information about your Facebook friends. So it wasn't even about, did those people expect their data to be used in this way? Those people consented to something, but their friends were never even given the yep. opportunity to consent. And that's how they got that 50 million. So the the way they obtained the information was dubious dodgy unethical mm -hmm. um if even if it was legal at the time which i'm i'm not sure that that even would be legal in the data protection act but you know i'm not a lawyer i'm just i'm just going to raise my eyebrows um <laughs> <laughs> she is um i think maybe we should get a lawyer on um this show at some point to to talk through um, much of this sort of thing because it is quite interesting and though that case that bit of the case is historical I think if you were you know projecting what you might be able to do with that information then you would obviously not consent yeah. to that point you would say you know 
no, like this is too much of my information or too much information about yeah. the people I know. I mean, it almost seems like just holding that amount of people's information shouldn't be okay because it's just it's just such a huge data set. It's like asking to be used in the wrong way. It's also like a huge security risk. Mm. I mean, even now, the question is, what have they done with that data? You know, they've been asked to delete it. I mean, that that's another key yeah. part of it. They were actually asked to delete that data in 2015 by Facebook, but they didn't provide any proof that they had deleted it. Yeah, I mean, that is such a ridiculous thing to happen in this technology world now. Like, um, how easy is it just to duplicate files? Yeah, and how hard is it to truly delete something? I mean, you ask that even just on your own computer, you know, you delete something and then it's in your recycle bin. And if you delete it from there, there are still ways of getting it back again yeah i mean uh if anyone wants to know about that you can actually retrieve deleted data because um how it actually works on your hard drive is it gets un unlisted and then written over at some other time in the future so if you relist your hard drive again using a bit of software you can refind all those files um so that's how it actually works in in the technical aspect of it if anyone's interested in knowing um but yes, it is ridiculously hard when you, especially when you have things in the cloud, like um, Facebook and Google, all these services, not only are cloud services, but they also own these, the hardware which runs those cloud services and have them all over the world. So they are constantly duplicating this information. Um, so it's it, it's very difficult to uh, delete anything that's on those services for a start, um, as well as you know having a big collection pool like Cambridge Analytica did. Um, so do you think they are, I mean, obviously they are putting um, together a case against them at the moment, but do you think GDPR, GDPR and things like this are going to be the frontier of uh, making sure that these things don't happen yeah, again? Yeah, I do. Um, well, I think there's a combination of things um, to answer your question about that because mm-hmm. One of the other aspects of the GDPR that's new is increasing the ability of the regulator to fine companies. They did have an ability before, but it was quite capped. It was a monetary cap, whereas now it's about a percentage of profits. Yep. And so... And it's quite a large. It can yeah. be quite a large And amount, I think that is... Yeah. Uh, the the threat is present, and I think that like encourages good behavior to a degree. Um, it's disappointing that fines mm-hmm. have to be what does that, but it's there. Um, and I also think, though, that actually the government stepping up and demanding better, like the government interviewing these companies, like having Christopher Wiley, that's his... Having Christopher Wiley come in and speak to them about it and like actually pay attention to what is going on is really important. Um, I would prefer that they would actually confront the question about whether or not the entire Brexit mm. vote was legal. Um, but I I realize that a government is not really fond of addressing Brexit um, and having that right now. Yeah. So if anyone's listening in a different country, um, Brexit, um, you may or may not have heard of, but it was something that happened in the UK, um, I think last year now, um, which was a massive uh, swear word. And um, basically we were fooled into, or a lot of the country were fooled into 
believing in their bigotry and voting um, for leaving the the European Union, which um, obviously myself and Ruth um, are saying was a bad idea. But regardless of what you actually voted, um, a lot of what uh, was said during that time was um, now proven false. So uh, we were being misled. Yeah, and there's a lot of questions about whether money was spent according to rules and regulations about how money can be spent during referendums and now there are questions about whether the data that was used was done so ethically and within the rules so it's it's one of those things where the vote went the way our current prime minister wanted it to go or at least the way she is tied into now and i don't think is really willing to address those questions um but in terms of going back to talking about data in cambridge analytica um, yeah. I also think that it is about having people be really vocal like this. Like when there's this much public attention, it is forcing companies to to like go, oh, we can't just carry on. Like I think that stories that used to just be in Tech Dirt or Wired magazine that a few people were yeah. reading about now are making it into the main papers. Like that's also really important. It serves that people are not just going to kind of go, oh, that's a tech story. Because that divide between the tech press and the main press is just like ever disappearing. Because the tech stories are affecting our lives. So why should they be dealt with just in like a niche press? Um Yeah. Yeah, I mean most of the time they're not talking about the the technical, they're talking about technology, and I think that's maybe a distinction there. They're not talking about the code or the hardware, but they're talking about how people use it or how it's being used or the business of using these things. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you, what would you tell businesses who are worried about um, this GDP, um, the GDPR coming in and um, where they should be able to read and learn more about um, maybe good practices or get involved with um, some of the work that you do? Um, well, in terms of understanding about the GDPR itself, I think that the ICO actually have really good guidelines on their website. And I think that they're very helpful. I found them really good to just um, call up and ask questions to. They've been doing a bunch of workshops around the country to help people understand how it works in relation to their business. They actually have guides in relation to different mm -hmm. kinds of businesses. Um, and I think a lot of people are panicking and I think there's a fair amount of scaremongering about how much this is going to have to change everything. Like people are saying like, oh, you'll have to hire new staff. Um, but you don't actually yeah. have to hire a data protection officer if you don't have a business over like a certain size. Um, so like if you are a small business, it isn't as scary as all that. Um, and if you've been following the Data Protection Act already, it's it's not as substantial a change as I think some people are making out. Um, so that's mm. great. Um, I would also recommend um, looking at some of the writing that Access Now have on data protection. They're an international human rights organization. And they've got some really good blogs that talk about it and explain stuff to do with GDPR in a really accessible way. Um, Open Rights Group also do similar work that's really um, interesting blogs about it from like a human rights perspective. If you want to kind of read more about yep. those angles on it. Great. Um, so it's ico.org.uk. 
Um, I've actually read quite a bit and it's been um, very easy to read, actually. Uh, there's some terms which you have to get your head around, but, you know, it's very readable. Um, they are very nice. Um, and I send them an email and they reply to me, which is fabulous. That's what you want, isn't it? Um, so that's great. Um, I I think we should talk a little bit about Ooh. AI, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so on the podcast, we talk a lot about um, artificial intelligence and a lot of the algorithms inherent in, in machine learning, um, AI, are data-hungry um, algorithms. They, they perform better if they have um, massive volumes of information thrown at them so that they can crunch through it and produce these models, right? So uh, this somewhat flies in the face of, um, uh, of, kind of data protection in some ways. Obviously, it depends on what you're talking about. Um, but... If the more we um, try and apply these algorithms, and you can quite easily think about things like um, um, face identification, um, you know, this kind of Orwellian style um, privacy issues. Um, and that is very different from what we're seeing coming in with GDPR. Do you have any kind of like I, um, thoughts about how we maybe traverse this kind of? Um, oxymoronic um, issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can yeah, say one no. One second, it's fine. because <laughs> yeah. I am sure that there is something, and I'm just trying to check what it is. Yeah. So there is mm -hmm. a section in GDPR that says that the data subject has a right not to be subject to a decision made solely based on automated processing, and that includes profiling. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does say solely on automated processing, which means you are allowed decisions that are based on automated processing and then a person at the end but it does recognize already mm. how much automated processing and like what you're talking about i think a little bit these kind of things with like facial recognition that's using that if you use a facial recognition um system and then use that to arrest someone um that's also something that gdpr yep. is saying isn't allowed yeah no, that's, that's really interesting um i think that's a good example um coming back to kind of like saying no um, already you get things like um, automating um, the process of having a credit check and things like like boring kind of things that people use to you know get mortgages to buy cars and things like that and under gdpr it's saying that you have to have some human being look at this information in those circumstances yeah. as well do you think it's really interesting that you that you mention credit checks because they've been going on for so long but they are really quite dubious in the way that they make decisions about people's lives like we're going to talk about how you don't see how that decision's being made i mean people have for a long time criticized how untransparent that is you know you try and get a credit check on a mortgage and you're being refused and you don't know why you don't get that chance to refute it to say that this is based on some outdated information like that that is actually an example of this automation that's been going on for a long time and hopefully these new rules might give us a way to change old practices not just to prevent new bad practices uh, i think people should be able to see what makes a credit check decision yeah so hopefully everything like that is going to become more transparent or it's going to have to have an indication of where those things those decisions are coming from and hopefully maybe have someone at the other end of the phone as well because often you get these um you know letters or just instant 
rejections and you don't know why, like we were saying. Um, I mean, that's that sounds ideal. Hopefully, um, they've got um, just yeah. over a month to a sort that out. A lot of it right? is is also about all of this stuff to do with like AI in terms of algorithms. Is like we need transparency about mm. algorithms. Like we need to be able to see how these algorithms are built and the 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 root of decisions they're making. I actually went to a talk recently from someone who'd built um, an AI um, machine learning system that was for analyzing court cases Mm -hmm. to look at how many court cases contain information relating to domestic violence. So it was a very specific tool. And they'd spent something like over a year building this thing, feeding in information to it. And then she was demonstrating how there were different points in it where you could look at the results and then you could say like how has this result come about and it would show you the little snippet of the text and it would say it contains these words these words and these words and these words have been flagged Mm. as like whenever they appear more than this many times then the algorithm says that the odds are that it's in this category it was a really interesting tool i will try and send you after this who it was who gave that because i can't remember yep so you've got it for your footnotes but it was it was a demonstration not yep. just about ai but really she was showing you how you can build an algorithmic system that shows you how it's making its decisions and that was like really really interesting because people say like oh mm. these things are so complicated how can anyone understand but she deliberately built it in a way that allowed you to see the way decisions are being made yeah i think often these systems inherently aren't built like that um and there's a reason there's there's also a technical reason how that plays out but also there's lots of work in that field trying to um you know interrogate these algorithms either after they've created these models or in the, in the making of the models and i think that's a really good example of like you know from the start you're making a model which which tells you about itself and at the end of the day all everything is statistics in in this field really so there's no real reason it shouldn't be able to do that hopefully um and hopefully we should see more well, there's a lot of energy in, in that way at the moment um but it, it is quite difficult if you're using a uh, black box system and then you're having to tell people um why a decision's made and perhaps given that you won't be able to do that maybe you shouldn't be using that system in that way or you you know, you you can't be using it to make um, hard and fast decisions about people's lives. And I mean, I think there are some things maybe. that we really just need to place off limits. You know, when people are talking about using machine learning to decide if someone will commit a crime, like a lot of, I mean, in the American prison system, mm. they are already using systems to decide if someone will reoffend when deciding whether or not to let people out early. And how were those judgments made? Like, we need to think really seriously about what is the information that you're getting from there. If you're using a data set that's racist because society is racist, if you say, mm-hmm. oh, well, our system says that black people reoffend more often, like, why is that? Is it that they offend more often or is it that they're arrested more yeah. often? Like, there is. Yeah. So, you, so you're almost using the algorithm in yeah. the wrong and, place. In and that it's scenario. just. That data isn't neutral, I think, is another really key thing. Like, we think that facts can just be themselves and that they don't come with politics. And we can try and put off the idea of responsibility by saying, 
an algorithm is deciding this or like, no, this is just a data set. But if you want to take a data set about who gets ill or who gets arrested and think that those are just mm. neutral pieces of information and you can make judgments about people, you're not actually thinking about where does that data come from? Like, why is that data collected? I mean, race is just such an obvious example because if you look at a data set that tells you, um, you know, certain people commit crime more often or like certain people take drugs more often, and then the real question is, no, who gets arrested for drugs the most often? <laughs> you know, it, it's not accurate to who's committing yeah. crime. It's it's a, not a record of that. It's a record of who is arrested and who is tried and found guilty. Yeah, they're two different separate bits of information. Yeah, and we have to like look at every data set that we're gathering and say, no, what is this like really telling us? Yeah, I think that's super important. And race is an easy one to pull out, but also gender um, and also different types of, um, you know, hierarchical um, people. Uh, in England, we have this kind of working class, upper class divide somewhat. Um, and I think it's just really interesting how people are failing at understanding what you just pointed out. Um, and it, you could be using these algorithms to find out really useful information about, you know, what is it about the fact that the, this certain population are getting arrested more or having more trouble with drugs or, or whatever it is? Um, you know, why are we not interrogating that and making um, decisions that can make people's lives better instead of maybe misusing that technology and making yeah, decisions um, on those people's behalf? I saw, I saw another example, um, which was about you know, university admissions which was using machine learning to predict whether or not people would drop out early. And if they're looking at that and saying, oh, well, working mm. class people drop out of university earlier, so we should stop accepting them because they're just a waste of our time. And wow. yeah, the question that is, is no. If you look at your data set and it says these this group of people drop out of university early, Instead of not accepting them, you need to say, why? What are we doing to fail those people and fix that problem? Instead of trying to say, let's try and come up with a system to only accept into university people who will see the course all the way through. And, I, and I'm really worried that just a lot of these systems are actually taking our society back there because they're reinforcing prejudice, not challenging it. Yeah, I think um, there needs to be more people who are data scientists who are concerned with the ethical um, implications or just are very good at their job because, I mean, the things that you pointed out should be obvious to those people um, that collecting the data is, is it's what's that saying, like garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you're collecting garbage information and telling people, making decisions on that garbage information or bias information inherently because the way it was collected was nefarious or um was leading or all these different types of things associated and also in my mind just knowing just accepting that data isn't the real world or isn't um the be all and end all yeah it's, it's i think it's accepting that data isn't neutral um, um i think i think people mm. have a tendency in our culture especially to really believe that there's such a thing as like a neutral fact and and that there isn't because there's too many things that contribute towards that data point. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I, I do think that what's exciting is people are asking these questions. Like, you know, you have a podcast about it and 
I have so many books that I want to read yeah. on this topic. I have that um, Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks on my to-read list right now. Um, I have a book called The Poverty mm. of Privacy Rights like on my to-read list. I know that people are interrogating these questions. And we've got like sociology professors who are working with technologists to try and develop these tools in a more ethical way. You know, the people who work even at Microsoft in the AI department are like going to conferences and asking these questions and thinking about these things very critically. So yeah. it's it's like worrying the people who are leaping on the new tools without engaging, who are just saying like, oh, we can just use this data set to solve all our problems. Like, why bother with a court system when we could just ask the machine if this person should be in jail? You know, there, there are people who seem to think that we can just offset mm. our lives onto AI. But I think most people who are really interrogating them are doing so thoughtfully. Great. So that is a fantastic um, sentiment to finish on. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish for the, um, for the day? I would. I mean, like, I'd thought maybe you'd ask about whether or not people should leave Facebook, but um... yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good. I think maybe we just need to accept that people don't need to use Facebook, maybe, and that there are. I was going to say my answer. My answer on that is um, is to say that um, it's not yeah. on individuals to make up for Facebook's failures. Yeah, no, that's really good. So, are you? Have you? Have you? Um, no, I actually wrote an Facebook? article um, on my blog a while ago, like well before all of this stuff, and uh, called "Facebook Has Its Claws in Me and I Want Out." Mm -hmm. And I wrote like a whole list of all of the things that Facebook has done that drives me mad, you know. And I'm I'm not talking about this Cambridge Analytica. I'm talking about like the way it censors images of women, the way it creates like a facial recognition database without people's permission, the level of colonialism it carries out, introducing yeah. itself as the internet to a number of other countries, the way it collaborates with oppressive organizations yeah. and regimes in order to censor minority speech. Like, there's a really long list. And then I was just like, but I still can't leave because it's where life happens. And, you know... It's not just like, oh, well, I talk to my friends, like everything happens. There. That's how you do stay in touch with people. It's like all the groups that you're in, it's like professional contacts. And I mean, fundamentally, mm. it's just like it is part of our society right right now. And when you opt out of it, you're opting out of everything else about being part of people. You're isolating yourself when you make that decision. And I do not like feeling like I'm complicit in their awfulness. At the same time, yeah. I think that people leaving doesn't impact Facebook. It's like trying to fix global warming on your own. Like you are trying to do something, but you're not going to make a big difference unless like the major companies actually change their practices. And I think you need groups, like you need the regulators, yeah. you need the governments to call them to account and ask them to change their behavior. And you can do collective actions. You know, you can call on Facebook to try and get them to change, but it has to be done in a collective way. Like even when you do a boycott, a boycott doesn't work if you just privately decide, I'm not going to buy this company's product anymore. And they don't know why. You have to tell them why. And you have to do it as a group. You have to make it like clear that it's happening. Um, yes, that is true. I feel like maybe 
it sounds like you're more tied to Facebook than I am. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think I think I could leave Facebook, well, um, and that would be fine. So, but then then again, like you said, that's just me and. Who I think people need to make a decision that's right for them. Like, um, if you can leave Facebook and be happy with it, then go for it. Like, great. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we should tell other people Thanks. that, like, the right thing for them to do is to leave Facebook because it's not... Yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not on individuals. Yes, sure. I think um, I think we could go down a rabbit hole with this one um, because I have a lot to say about general practice of social networks and the workings of these sorts of utility programs almost um but we're not going to go there quite yet we'll maybe save that for a bumper cast um if i do that sort of thing in the future um ruth it's fantastic to have you on the podcast i would love to talk to you um more but um we are on about an hour now so we'll let our listeners get on with their lives if people want to follow you contact you yep you can find me on twitter as at nescient that's n-e-s-i-e-n-t or on my podcast the intersection of things which you can also find at the intersection of things.com or at things intersect on twitter Brilliant. thanks so much for having me great well thanks very much <laughs>